Welcome. I welcome you to Radio Wolf, our webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have with me from London, Phoebe Tickle. Phoebe, hello to Radio Wolf. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Hi, everyone. Phoebe, you are a scientist. Once you call yourself a renegade scientist, you're a systems thinker, social entrepreneur, and you created an organization called Moral Imaginations. And I would like to start this conversations, moral imaginations, or what should we think about uh, what moral imaginations are? It seems to be an important part of your work. It is. Um, I like that you want to start with the most recent thing rather than start at the beginning. Um, yeah, so Moral Imaginations is an organization as of June this year. Um, and what it is stewarding is a body of work that is about connecting people to their deepest moral sense. And when we use the word moral, it often uh, triggers people, which is always interesting. It, it brings up quite a lot because there's quite a lot of cultural baggage around the word moral. Um, but the way that I, we use it with moral imagination is a sense of what is right, like a sense of a deep sense of what kind of life um, you, you want to live and what kind of person you want to be. So it's really bringing very strong intentionality <clears throat> to life, to your life, to your precious time on this earth. That's how we work with this word moral. And then imagination is about the practice. So we've developed a, a whole um, a toolkit of methodologies and approaches where people um, experientially connect using their imagination to a sense of what is deeply important to them. We use the creative, kind of creative and playful approaches that draw on uh, narrative methodologies, um, deep ecology practices, Buddhist meditation. So a lot of different, it's, a, it's drawing on a lot of different uh, sources that I have explored over the last 10, 10 or so years. And so it, it's kind of a culmination of many different approaches, but at its, at its core, it's an artistic, it's an artistic way mm. of um, exploring one's sensibilities, one's hopes, one's fears, one's desires for the future. And these things that we hold very deeply and very dear to ourselves, but we don't actually usually have a space to share about that and actually connect with that together. Um, so that's just, that's a jumping off point. So how did you come to, to do this work? <clears throat> how did I come to do this work? Um, it's quite, a, yeah, it's in a way, it's quite a deep question. Um, I think from quite a young age, I mean, since I was 22, I've been, uh, I've identified as a social entrepreneur. So somebody who has created many different initiatives um, with the aim of, of shifting the system. And the way that I've always decided, what do I want to do with my life? Like my career, my you know, professional life ever since leaving university, it's always been about zooming out and connecting with what, what, what kind of world do I want to live in and what kind of person do I want to be? Um, and so in a sense, I think I've always practiced this this is always a practice. Like I always, I always try and go back to first principles. And maybe this is because of my scientific background that rather than being swept up by whatever is the kind of narrative or the, you know, the cultural um, waves that we find ourselves in, I've always felt that actually a life 
for me that is worth living is one that connects to first principles of what kind of person do I want to be and what kind of world do I want to live in and um <clears throat> I think there's a priv that that's to do with privilege like it's to do with uh feeling like I have the permission to imagine that things could be different um and I think I actually have my my time at um a very a, a kind of prestigious academic university I I went to Cambridge University and I mean, it was quite a journey because I started life in a, my local state school. It was like a very, you know, just like a local school, quite uh, yeah, in some ways quite rough. And then um, after that, went to a private school, secondary school um, and and got in got into that. And then from there, ended up going to Cambridge University. And my mother is Hungarian. Um, and you know, and an immigrant to the UK, and so you know, for her and for my Hungarian family, you know, Oxford and Cambridge was was this, in a way, a bit of a dream, like a bit of a an ideal, a sense of, um, you know, this is the the kind of the best that the, the world has to offer, and it was a really big deal for my family, especially my Hungarian family. Um, and then when I arrived at Cambridge, I was. I, I, in a way, I was so shocked by um, the way things worked there because I had envisioned that it would be very different. I envisioned a really boundless, thriving, um, amazing kind of learning culture where, you know, learning and a love of learning was at the heart of it. And I just imagined that it would be an amazing experience. And when I arrived, I I was shocked because it was very, in a way, it was it was a it was so high pressure. There was a lot of problems with people uh, having mental health issues. People were under a huge amount of stress. There was no time to actually explore topics, like not just the topics that we were learning, but also larger topics of life. You know, you, you're 18 years old. You're, you're supposed to be getting prepared to think about the world and what kind of life you want to live. And there's just no time for that. And all the pressure was about doing exams and studying and so in that moment, in that experience, you know, I had a, I had quite a difficult time. I, I managed to have a good time in the end, but it was there were definitely points of struggle. And I think how I integrated that experience after I graduated, I, I uh, saved up and worked through the summer. And then I went and traveled to Southeast Asia and, and took some time, took six months to travel and to integrate this experience and to, to work out what I wanted to do next. I think part of how I integrated that experience was... Um, just realizing that actually like the way that the world was like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it was quite a developmental jump, I guess, because it was a realization mm. that um, rather than being a passive um, participant or receiver of the system, like in a sense, like the society and the system and the education system in particular, it was a moment of, of transformation for me because it made me realize actually the education system could be so much better and I can actually imagine how it would be different and I could imagine really concrete ways that you could redesign a university to be a much more enlivening supportive and participatory experience and so in that moment I, I started to realize like I'm 21 years old but who's to say that that you know I don't have something to contribute to to change things this is a very long answer to your question but this is really what what came up for me 
And so then my first initiative out of university was with um, a friend from university starting an organization that ran transformative education programs for teenagers, for people aged 11 to 18. And it was just extraordinary to realize, like, I, I felt like I was barely an adult and I was able to design something and create something that had value and that actually through being young, through being you know, the age I was, I was able to offer something that perhaps I wouldn't be able to offer in 10 or 20 years time, because there was a gift of having just come through the education system and having ideas about how it could be different. And then going out and and designing that and doing something and seeing, I think also seeing that people responded to that and, and were excited about it. So I think the, to loop back to your question of where, how did you start to do this work? I think that was probably the core of it, was realizing that I can envision there, there's a power in connecting with your, um, with trusting your instinct, right? Like, I think there's such a part of what moral imaginations is trying to, um, I wouldn't say solve, but is, try, is in response to is the, in a way, part of the theory of change is that we as human beings are robbed of our sense of actually knowing what is good for us and what we need and what what is what we think is a good life and what we think is is you know suits what we need. And this happens through our education system. It happens through you know going into workplaces where you're nested in hierarchies and you're constantly looking upwards to to a manager to tell you that you've done a good job, even if you think like, no, I have done a good job or no, I think this is really good work. It doesn't, it, it's not really about what you think. So there's something about returning a sovereignty to the individual of like, what is important to you? And especially to communities of, on the ground. So we, we work with communities right now in the UK, although we're also exploring doing work in um, some parts in Europe and also in the US um, because, you know, to zoom out, like our political systems and our economic systems don't integrate what is important to normal human beings, to communities, to actually, actually the people who have to live in those systems. So by boosting and supporting and um, bolstering, you know, citizens' moral imagination, we hope that we can also shift um, these larger systems like the economic system Mm. and, and the democratic system as well to give a voice to what is truly important to to human beings. I think that seems to be the core of this work. And I have to admit, when I heard about uh, moral imagination, there's something that electrified me right away. And it was the combination of these words Mm. in context of transformations of systems and society and the democratic process, because uh, both, in fact, imagination and morals don't have necessarily a good reputation. I mean, imaginations, yes, it's great to have imaginations. It's a nice thing, but uh, in let's call the serious scientific community, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really not uh, touching the the, the rigid necessities of the scientific process. Mm -hmm. But there's something about our human capacity for imagination which you can call just uh, the capacity to dream, but I think that is maybe uh, taking a little too flat, uh, at least how we usually understand dreaming, because you have a nice dream, but our capacity to, yes, imagine how we want to live together. Mm. 
And then what you started to say also a, a minute ago, our moral senses, that we as humans, we, we, we have a deep sense, a gut sense, whatever it is, of uh, what uh, we feel a good life is about uh, or what right and wrong is about. Mm. And there's something when we trust to go with that and to, to communicate with each other, um, maybe this is also the foundation how to create democratic societies. Democratic societies are very much about coming together. How do we want to live together? And it seems that in our time, uh, also in COVID time, we are basically uh, the specialists, uh, the epidemic specialists tell us, and nothing, I mean, I, I really appreciate the work also of, of epidemiologists and what they do, but there's something about our human capacity to imagine how to respond that liberates something uh, that seems to be missed, left out and being important. I guess that many people who watch this uh, saw in the invitation uh, for this video, uh, this little clip, video clip, the possible drain story, and uh, got a sense of what you're doing or what you're inviting people to do. But I really, uh, I would like to investigate how something like moral, moral imaginations can be a powerful tool to transform, to transform society, to transform us. Mm -hmm. What's your experience doing that? My experience in moral imagination transforming society. Um, well, we work with, I guess there are kind of three different ways that we work. We work, work with communities, like place-based communities. So people living in towns or villages or um, yeah, phys physically based communities. We work with organizations and institutions and various, everything from kind of local councils to um, larger, more national um, organizations. And then we also do work just, just more broadly, like with the public. So with the, the Impossible Train story, that was a, a, a piece of work that we just put out to the public, to our networks and to, to anybody who, yeah, who, who sees it and, and who shows up. Um, I think the way I've seen, well, the, the theory of change behind the work is, is kind of twofold. So the first one is shifting perception. So creating the space, you know, whether that's the time or the physical space or, um, you know, with a five minute video, creating an experience where people can be kind of snap out of the everyday business as usual, keeping going at, you know, sort of a bit more on um, what's the word automatic, like a, an automatic way of living where you're just sort of waking up and, and in a default mode. Um, and what we try and create for people, sorry, the sun is really, <laughs> really sh shining very strongly now. Um, what we try and create for people is a point is, is a, a way is we call it portals. So we try and create kind of portals out of the business as usual into a space of a deeper, you know, connection, a deeper connection with what's important. Some people have called it kind of universal, you know, a universal sense or a, or a sense of, um, yeah, some people would say spirit, you know, spiritual. I don't, we don't usually use, use that word, but um, that bigger picture, you know, a connection to the bigger picture. 
And we do this through, um, at the moment, we focus on three pillars. So there are three portals that, that help um, people access this bigger picture. And they are um, a connection to the future generations, a connection to the natural world, to the more than human world, and lastly, a connection to um, ancestors and, and kind of mm -hmm. deep time in the past. Um, and these, by connecting with these three pillars in different, using different methodologies and approaches and exercises, people get this expanded sense of, of, al of aliveness and being alive. And um, yeah, it's, it's almost like an antidote to the kind of busy, short term, you know, disconnected from nature way of existing that, that mm -hmm. we're currently is, is quite a default, especially if you live in an urban area. So that's the first phase is a shifting of perception and, and an expanded sense of self. And in a way, you know, some people say this is almost like a return to an indigenous, indigenous way of, of being or, or maybe towards um, in, indigeneity. Although I wouldn't say that because, you know, indigenous implies going backwards, like it implies we're kind of going back to how we used to live. I think there's something about, you know, we're going where we can't go back but we can reconnect. We can reconnect with the natural world. We can reconnect with a sense of future generations, a sense of where we come from, a sense of belonging, of meaning, of purpose. So this is the first phase. And then the second phase is how do you then embed imagination into, um, you know, into either your organizational practice or into your place-based community how can we create physical spaces to keep, to keep this connection, these portals going? Um, and how can we actually embed practices into the way that, you know, community gathers together or, um, you know, when we're working with a local council, how decisions are made. So we're, we're really interested in um, how to, how to, you know, imagination alone is great, but, you know, this project has always been about deep systems change. So how can we embed these practices into um, our current systems, whether those be organizational or democratic or um, community-based governance? Watching your work, I, I watched some of your videos and I also I, I saw you in Berlin where we were together at the gathering. Oh, what I was impressed by is doing this, you somehow get liberated out of your functional mode. Mm -hmm. There's a recognition, if you... Uh, you can call it spiritual, but you don't need to call it spiritual, but there's some uh, recognition that if I uh, leave my usual functional uh, relationships, how I uh, feel my necessities to unfold, maybe my, my work, maybe may, may my family life, somehow how I have to function, when I leave that and I'm put mm -hmm. in a different place, something comes alive in myself that connect, connects me deeper to a deeper layer of reality and it's there. That's the recognition. It's there. It's not something that I kind of have to, oh, what is this really about? Uh, it's a recognition. No, there are deeper layers in myself. And then when I start to talk with others, I also realize it's in us. So we can start to talk about it and mm -hmm. can reconnect it back to our day-to-day -day life. But there's something where I uh, realize in these deep time relationships, maybe to my ancestors, maybe to 300 years in in the future and someone who I talk to, that's the exercise you did in Berlin with us, mm -hmm. 
But something comes in life with me that obviously is there and it's meaningful and it tells me something that is important that is beyond my usual functional thinking. And that that's what I find this power of imagination. And mm. it's not just nice fantasy. It's also really related to my deepest values. Mm-hmm. So we connect in a way as human beings uh, how we usually don't connect because usually we connect in some way how we function with each other. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, in, in professions, maybe in private, but how we function together. But you call us to something that liberates deeper layers of our humanity. And I find this uh, what makes this uh, work really powerful. Wow, thank you, Thomas. I, I feel like, um, yeah, it's wonderful to, to hear, yeah, to hear the impact that the Berlin session had um, on you. And, and, and just in case people don't know what, what, which gathering we're talking about, we were at the Emerge gathering in Berlin that was organized um, yeah, by, by Emerge and by uh, Perspectiva. Um, but I think that's it. That's it at the core. At the core, it's about using imagination to connect with our deepest values, our sense of what's important. Um, and it's interesting to reflect on why it is difficult to do that, you know, when, without the help of imagination. I mean, what are the mm-hmm. other ways that we have currently to really connect with, with, um, with our values and with our deepest moral sense I I don't I mean in a way that's what religion used to be a space for um you know some people use meditation and some people use journaling I find it quite difficult to do that without I find it much easier to do that in a group in a Mm -hmm. in a collective setting and container um I feel like I can in a way being seen by the group being supported by the group also helps bring that alive in me like who who am I really and who who do I want to be um yeah I mean I I don't want to put too much on you but uh, what I find is there's also an implicit critique of our rationalistic mindset how we try to solve the problems of society Mm -hmm. and because we are very uh modernist, enlightened human being, uh, we, we value and I also want to value the uh, developments of uh, Western enlightenment mm-hmm. and our rational capacities and, and science. And this is all important, but it seems that this perspective, as important as it is, it misses something out in our deeper mm. uh, appreciation what this all is about. So that we need new human capacities, which is not necessarily a going back. Maybe it's a, re- a recovering uh, or a reintegration of something, but it's not pushing away uh, science rationality, but it's trying to connect us with other forms of perception mm-hmm. and other forms of uh, seeing and truth that we only can really access in a way of imagination. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, I, I see that there's also something opening up where we really uh, try to understand, uh, yes, we have to be very rational in the way of how we relate with our societies. We're in a very critical situation as a civilization. We have to uh, also trust science, mm. uh, but we also have to see that we have other human faculties. And with this other human faculties, we don't see the whole picture and this mm-hmm. something is opening up that we have to do together. And it's both again. It's mm-hmm. our capacity to imagine 
and it's our moral sense. There's mm-hmm. a deep sense in us where we feel um, this is right, this is wrong, and we can discuss it. I'm not saying that this is necessarily true, but it's a big part of us. And just trusting that there's something in our soul and our heart that feels this way mm-hmm. and is related to how we can imagine allows us to think differently how we develop our societies. And this capacity is a, is a human technology, if I may call it this way. It sounds a little strange to call it a technology, but uh, mm. uh, it is something that I think we have to develop together in order if we also want to get out of this trap of just systemic, rational thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, not denying it, but seeing it's limited. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this has been a core part of my journey being a scientist. And, you know, part of my struggle at, at university was this sense of, you know, I'd gone into science thinking that natural science, you know, the the old, um, I wouldn't say ancient, but the, the, you know, the older kind of natural scientists were much more like philosophers, you know, the boundary between philosophy and science was much more porous. And in a sense, now, science has been boiled down into a a, a hyper rational you know experiment based only largely it's it's focused around experiments although you know some of some areas of science are are a little different you know you've got areas of kind of theoretical physics or evolutionary biology but largely it was so it felt so devoid of um, these larger questions of, of what's important why are we here on the earth you know, how do we find out in science is at its core a quest towards truth, but those larger philosophical questions were missing for me. Um, and since, you know, I, I worked as a scientist, as a researcher at Imperial College for two, two years after leaving Cambridge, um, because I, I, I really love science, you know, I, I loved it and I found it very difficult to let go of it because I still really wanted to be in that world and to interact with scientists and to, um, yeah, to be in science is also a a way of being in relationship with the natural world. It's a way of being curious and and connecting and um, being in this, as I say, like in a kind of communion or a relationship with, with the natural world and and with wonder and with um, a, a kind of, desire for truth and uh, meaning Um, but so much of that has been yeah it's not present in modern day science and it's all it's been really boiled down to the quantitative facts and it's also very interesting that within science um, it's expected that you remove the human being as much as possible so you know you Mm -hmm. wear a white lab coat you wear goggles you tie your hair back it's about almost trying to create like a non- non-human and you know person who is doing the experiment so that you have this sterile condition and and do your experiments in the lab in a in a sterile lab which again is really bizarre when you're trying to study and and connect with and understand life and then you're doing it by taking life out of its natural setting and putting it into a, a sterile lab where you then study it and you know, I like to talk about how when I was um, studying ecology and evolution and behavior, which was one module of the the larger degree program, um, you know, the way we were studying life was through learning kind of lists of species names and categories. 
and taking living things into the laboratory and dissecting them, you know, cutting them up, killing them, which like, it seems totally normal, you know, in, in one sense, but in another sense, when you really look at that, it's, it's pretty weird. It's kind of, it's pretty weird. Um, you know, if that, I understand if it's one part of the study of, of living things, but also it should be complemented by spending time in nature around the living, living things that you're studying and, you know, studying them in their natural setting and, and forming a relationship with them. Mm. And there are scientists out there. I mean, lucky for me, I found Schumacher College when I left science because, and, and that's also why I was based in Devon for many years and I'm still still spend a lot of time in Devon in a place called Totnes or in Dartington um, and I was in a way I was taken taken under the wing of uh, an amazing teacher and uh, educator called Stefan Harding who runs the holistic science master's program at Schumacher College and what the holistic science program is all about is exactly about expanding out from from this dry quantitative hyper rational science into a mm. science that includes um brian goodwin who is one of the founders of schumacher college talks about a, sci a science of qualities which mm. again it's so connected to what what my work uh, focuses on now is this bringing a rigor you know bringing a rigor to um things like feeling and imagination and um you know some people call this the post-rational so mm. beyond not kind of pre-rational or non-rational it's about you know that it's about creating a space and an importance and a permission for these other human qualities that that are so important for influencing society and for deciding what kind of systems we we go on to create and it's really funny because i work i really work in a very i often work in quite an intuitive way you know with moral imagination um it was through spending time with my an amazing teacher joanna macy who has really been a huge influence on my work. And she's, you know, she's now in her 90s. She's based in California and her, her past and her experiences in being a Buddhist, Buddhist philosopher, systems, um, her, her kind of PhD. She has a PhD on systems science. She's a deep ecologist and she's an activist. And what was I, where was I going with this? Ah, yes. Yeah, so her work, the work that reconnects really influenced me. And I was trained in that body of work seven years ago. And some of the practices and exercises we work with in moral imaginations are directly adapted from the work that reconnects. And so, you know, she, in a way, um, moral imaginations is, is, I would say is in the family tree of the work that reconnects. They're very closely related and she's who introduced me to the term moral imagination, mm -hmm. but it was, it was very intuitive. I felt immediately like you, I was really like a kind of bolt of like lightning of like this, this term, like this moral imagination that there's something there. There's something about combining the imagination with the democratic and the, the systemic that immediately grabbed me. Um, but it's only through, making sense backwards of all of the different things that I've, I've been through and have influenced me and the person, you know, a lot of it is very personal struggles as well. Um, you know, I think it, when telling one's life story, it's quite easy to make out that it's like, you know, you do one thing and then you do another thing and it all makes sense. And it's all this lovely path that makes total sense. But actually 
you know, the struggle of leaving behind science and, and leaving a career that, that in many ways had, was so dear to me. Like I, I really wanted to, there were large parts of me that really, really wanted my whole life to be lived as a scientist and to really stay mm. in that profession. And, um, you know, it was more than a profession. It was a, it was a calling. It was a vac- vacation. It was really, um, in so many ways it felt so right. And it's like, you know, actually grappling with that and grappling with my feelings of this is not right. And I'm trying to understand why is that? Like, why is it not right? What, what is it that feels wrong? And then, you know, discovering things like, uh, you know, the indigenous justice movements and de- decolonization movements and activist movements and, you know, really trying to understand and seeing what, what really speaks to me and what what really embodies the feeling that I already have and then my, making sense of it afterwards but it's it's not been an easy an easy path um but I think you know if you talk to many people about the work that they create it's often coming from their very personal challenges and a feeling and especially if you work in a in a more artistic way um it's not always a strategic you know you haven't worked out a kind of strategic this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to call it this. And then this, it's, it's a sort of making sense of it as you, as you go on and it's connected to your own development and your own sense-making and, and meaning, meaning-making as well. Let me maybe use this exercise that you did with us at the Emerge Gathering in Berlin mm-hmm. uh, as an illustration, at least that's how I understand it, of what you're just talking about. Mm-hmm. Because Uh, this exercise, in, in, in that exercise, uh, you asked us to meet someone who is living in the future in 300 years and have a conversation and then a conversation with someone in, in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, what stands out for me is that when you do that, you meet in wholeness. Just very simple, you meet in wholeness. Of course, this was a gathering which was about society, which was about uh, uh, rational dealing with the difficulties of our civilization, of our environment. So there's a lot of data, a lot of scientific facts that you have to bring in in, mm-hmm. in, in this conversation. But in this exercise, are both on both ends, talking with this imaginary person from the 300 years in the future, um, there's a meeting where I am present as I am with my uh, fears, with my hopes, with my heart, with my thinking, with my rationality, with my connection. Uh, the same, the person I talked to afterwards, we just met. We didn't meet in data. Mm. Uh, we, we, we met as we, as we are. And there's something to bring this wholeness together. Uh, and as I understand it, do the same thing with uh, the modern human life. Mm-hmm. And you connect with plants, with earth, with sky, with water, when you connect, when you not just have a, a calculative, calculative uh, rational thinking about uh, problems, but you connect, you, 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 you have a maybe even mythological relationship with mm. uh, this more than human nature. There's a, there's a connection on all levels. And when you really connect with your ancestors, where we all come from, there's a connection, all this, holds wholeness and it seems to be the missing other side to the details and the uh, k- kind of precise necessity of science that we also need mm. science needs to be measurable uh, me- needs to 
uh, meet a, a kind of a precise methodology in order to create whatever science does create, and that's important. But there is something that in, in meeting in wholeness and coming together in wholeness, mm. where very subtle parts of reality shine and come forth that otherwise are missing and that seem to be important, important part of the conversation. So that's what I feel what uh, uh, a, a method like moral imagination does. It, it allows us, it helps us to, to open these different dimensions that allows us to meet in wholeness. And my question, is that something that, that meets the way you think about it? Or, or is, is moral imagination in, in that sense a capacity also to help us to go beyond just the rational and, mm -hmm. and, and re reconnect us with something that is also part of our humanness that we need in order to, to meet the questions of our time. Mm. So it, it, honestly, it's so, uh, it's such a gift to listen to you speak because you're so art articulate. And, and it feels like, you you know, for me, Moral Imaginations, the, the project, what what it's trying to do is is a it's a creature in itself. You know, it's a it, and it's the same as, you know, if you you birth an organization or a, an entity, you know, it lives as its own. It's a being, you know, in, in its own right. And, and so to some extent, you know, I, I am uh, sourcing. You know, I'm, I feel like I, I have birthed this this being, and I'm helping uh, translate or, you know, explain and put into words, put into practice what what it what it is and what it what it's here to do. But um, it's you know, hearing someone else, you know, it, it feels like you're kind of listening to this being and to this this creature, and and you know, also helping make sense of of. Uh, yeah, put, putting putting it into words and so it really deeply resonates what what you're saying it really feels like you have um really connected with with the essence of of this project and this um I interrupt you yeah go ahead because what are you doing right now uh, uh calling this a being calling this a creature in some way is an act of imagination mm -hmm. uh, but uh what you're inviting us, or at least me, into to look at this whole thing more in, in, in a different way where I see uh, something showing up that's not just touching my rational, so what, uh, uh, thinking about it, but I relate to something as a living reality that allows me to see something that otherwise I'm not able to see, that there's some way of being together that you call a being, a creature, or uh, that has its own intelligence mm -hmm. that we can come together in, that you have your perspective on, I have my perspective on just by listening to your work. Just by doing this, uh, you're doing part of your work as I see. <laughs> and it shows me, and that's the way I, why, the reason why I interrupted, it shows me that I, it allows me to see things that otherwise I would not be able to see about what moral imagination is about by allowing me to see it as a living creature. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny to yeah, to point out actually this is this is an act of moral imagination in a sense. Um yeah, and I, I feel very clear that this is a 
it's a, a body of work that um, it's not mine, you know, mm. it's its own, it, it's its own being. And eventually, probably there will be other people who better, who maybe even more closely understand what it's about than I do. I don't know, maybe, maybe that will mm. happen. I think that's a, it's also, as you mentioned, I think, I know you didn't mention that was a conversation just before I was talking to someone about um, Frederick Leloux's work around kind of evolutionary development of organizations and you know that's been that's been a, a wonderful body of work kind of bringing this uh this perspective to organizations and to projects that actually they're kind of living beings and self self-organizing systems although um you know my other uh, another dear friend and teacher Nora Bateson you know likes to point out that it's it's also not fully correct to call an organization a living being um because actually organizations, I mean, this is a rabbit hole that we don't need to go down, but organizations are in a sense kind of parts of many people. They're not, it's not a whole being in itself. It's uh, anyway, mm-hmm. that's it. That's what I find that a very interesting perspective for me. And, but for me, moral imagination as it is currently is not really, you know, it's not an institution. It's not an organization of people, although there are many people involved and there's a team of, of wonderful people who are helping mm-hmm bring our programs and work to life um but i i really think of it much more like a like a being or an entity as as we were talking about um i'm just trying to remember the original question i think uh you you were describing um i've 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 managed to forget the original question but i just remember that you were describing it I also don't know what the last question is, but there's something I, I would like to add here uh, because I also see it as a symptom of mm-hmm. a symptom of our time because at least the way I understand it and many understand it in this way, the part of the crisis that we are in, the, uh, this obvious civilizational crisis that has all these different layers from uh, the climate crisis, from the financial crisis, uh, from the, the pandemic crisis, uh, from the migration crisis, all these different layers. But this crisis that we created has at least uh, uh, to one part a lot to do with the way how we perceive reality in our scientific understanding of reality. Mm-hmm. And that we as a civilization are starting to realize that. And we are looking for ways how to how to respond. And the different ways to responding, some ways are also kind of uh, going back, trying to go back to just uh, get away with modernity, get away with uh, uh, rational thinking. Uh, uh, but there, 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 there's a process that something is brewing in us as a civilization mm. where we try to find new higher forms of dealing with reality that uh, transcends and includes our scientific mindsets. Mm. And it is my conviction that uh, taking serious our imaginations mm-hmm. is part of this searching process where we try to find different ways how we create uh, a society together. And in that sense, I see that there are also different laboratories that just test what is the future, what, what's possible. And uh, your work seems to be one of these laboratories to test out how can we make a step beyond what brought us into this crisis. Exactly. And, uh, we don't know what will bring us out in the end, 
but the laboratories are alive and mm. I'm sure one of them will or a combination of them will. Mm. Mm, that's such a great metaphor that really and it really felt that way at the Emerge gathering as well that you know for me it's amazing to see just in the last five years I I swear there's been such an acceleration in the last five years or so of groups and people who are starting to cohere and to you know and, and, and within civil society as well like in the in the UK in the I'm quite embedded in the NGO public sector and government government um, local council sector um, and to see that there is a conversation alive around you know an awareness that we need a different different quality of space um, that we need imagination that we need uh, you know people use the words like collaboration or um you know, even just the self-organizing, you know, the, the non-hierarchical organization movement or the, the self-organizing, self-governing uh, co-op movement. Like, it's just amazing because five years ago, you know, when I was working at Schumacher College, it felt incredibly niche and actually quite, mm. you know, quite uh, on the fringes to the point where I, yeah, it, I wouldn't say it was being taken seriously at all within the within the mainstream. And now to see that there is this growing um, coherence around the conversation that we need to go beyond the rational. We need something other than just, you know, managerial, scientific, um, industrial uh, approaches. You know, I'm, I'm seeing people like thought leaders who who previously were, were would not have I think not have felt confident or secure to talk about these things in public. And, and that's really changing and that that's extraordinary and exciting. And as you say that, you know, the more that that be- more that becomes um, permissible and uh, like acceptable, you know, that you're not, it's always about the Overton window. There's this metaphor of the Overton window from politics of like the, the window of things that you can speak about as a politician and not get, Kind of ridiculed or mm-hmm. thrown out or you know rejected and I, I think it's it's very much like that that this Overton window is expanding and so more and more people feel able in a sense to actually do you know what they what they think is important I think for so many people you know deep down they want to explore these bigger questions they want to um, you know they, they want to use playful approaches and imagination and they want to have fun and and you know be uh, explore ways of being that are not just about being professional, um, you know, b- doing a good kind of job in terms of management and measure- measurable things. They also want to, yeah, be be connected to the bigger picture and have a connection to meaning and purpose and also have time for their families and what's important to them and connect to nature. Like I really do believe that that is a is a common thing across all even all of the political spectrum you know when when people um there are studies done on on what is you know really deeply important to people and across the kind of left and right you know things like nature and community are always the things that everybody can connect with um and so the, it's also a political movement you know in a way moral imagination is also political because it's saying rather than being stuck on this superficial level of, you know, this policy or that policy or this, you know, that it's kind of skirting around on the surface, but actually more deeply, if we design society and our um, economy and governance with these deeper 
values, then I, I really believe we would have more coherence because there are things that everybody does agree is important, like the, you know, the lives of the future generations or the quality of life for children or, uh, yeah, na nature and conservation. Um, and so I think there is also this political angle to the work. As we're also coming to the end of our time here, uh, uh, when people want to connect with your work, what should they check out? They can uh, check out the website. So it's www.moralimaginations.com. Um, and you can sign up there to be included in our updates and uh, newsletter, which, which will be coming. Um, and you can also follow, up, follow us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. I think it's, uh, our handle is at moral underscore imagining. Um, and we, yeah, please, please do sign up because we will notify people you know, on Twitter and, and on our newsletters of you know, public programs. So we're planning a lot of events and programs where people can get involved. And the trajectory of this is also to equip people with the tools and the approaches and the ability to facilitate these spaces themselves. Because obviously, you know, this, this should absolutely be a bottom up, you know, it's not a, it's not a top down movement it's a bottom-up movement um so yeah it would be great to great to have people join us if they feel connected to and inspired by this work thank you phoebe thank you for this thank conversation you. thank you so much i really enjoyed it <laughs>